0: Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the High Energy Legal Podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome back to another installment
1: of the Legal Face Off podcast right here on WGN Radio. My name is Joey Christopoulos, my co-host Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini. One of the issues surrounding the Gabby Petito case is missing white win- women syndrome here to discuss as personal injury lawyer, civil rights attorney, and frequent guest on Legal Faceoff, Cannon Lambert. How are you, Cannon? Hi, how are you? How are you? Cannon, thanks, thanks so
2: much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank so you. as Joey mentioned, missing white women's syndrome refers to the tendency of the media and the public to focus on cases of missing white women while not giving the same level of attention to missing women of color, Do you think that this phenomenon can be explained simply by blaming racism?
3: I don't. I don't. Um, I do think that there's a component of that. But there's there's also another component that sometimes gets left out of the discussion, and that is... Knowing how to access the media and how to, how to use the media, what we often don't realize as a general public is that stories are made because stories are presented to media and then they run with it. So if you go to a media source and say, I want you to carry this, sometimes they'll pick it up. Uh, I do think that there is an element where the the larger population focuses on um, the larger population. Um, I, I don't know that it's, it's like a, a, a visceral uh, and, and rancorous type of hatred that drives that so much as it is a blind spot.
4: Yeah, and Ken, I think you're being, you know... I think a little bit kind, uh, uh, but I, I I I agree with you. Maybe it's not like overt late, you know, racism, but you can't help but wonder. And I'm glad this is coming to light because I've thought this for years, and people have talked about it for years. But I'm glad now. Thanks again to some, you know, so, some people bringing this to attention. It was first coined by Gwen Eiffel, the great Gwen Eiffel, you know, a few years ago. But I'm glad it's being brought to everyone's attention because it is. It is. There's no other way to explain it. But you know, you've got this. White, blonde, very attractive young woman whose case is tragic. There's no question. Her case, you know, that she apparently was killed by, you know, Brian Laundrie, who's still on the lam, uh, that's a tragic situation. But leading the news every night for, you know, three weeks and seeing her picture shown over and over again, where, you know, without even thinking about it, without having the facts, there's obviously hundreds and hundreds of cases of other women, and many of whom don't look like Petito. Out there, and it's getting zero attention. So it's a really strange idea. And, you know, I'm not one on this show to
3: scream racism right away. But
4: on the other hand, you can't explain it really in any other way.
3: Well, well, I would say this to you. I mean, first off, I'm, I'm, it's nice of you to call me nice. I'm not often called that. I don't, uh, and, and candidly, when it comes to race, I don't, I don't look to, to mince words. But I do, in this instance, think that there are a bunch of things that are at work. So I don't think it's singularly racism. I do think that producers, national producers, that drive what we consume as news are sort of important. It's one of the reasons why it's so important that, You have diversity in the media because then you have people who are uh, familiar with communities and understand the dynamics internally within uh, communities of color and, and the like. Then those sorts of stories will get more attention because the producers will adopt them as stories. So you've got blind spots all over the place. Yes, there is a such thing as people saying, I don't want to cover that because they're black or yes, they're Hispanic. I don't want to cover that. That's real. That exists. But when it comes to a situation like this story, there's a lot of people that can relate to it. There are a lot of people that don't relate to it, but there are a lot of people that do relate to it. As a consequence, it becomes newsworthy.
4: I think it's a great point. I want to I want to get your take. I know Tina wants to jump in, too, but I, I got to get your take on sort of a side angle of this, which is incredibly as relevant as I think, so we've got here, and, and you're really in a unique position to discuss this because you, of course, as you've discussed on this show, represented Sandra Bland, right? Who a few years ago was arrested on the side of the highway in Texas for very questionable reasons, right? I mean, it was a basic traffic alleged traffic violation. Three days later, she's found dead, hanging in a cell among some very strange circumstances in Texas. So we understand that as a context in this case. We have body cam video of police officers who pull over Brian Laundrie, right? The alleged, even though he's called a person of interest, not a suspect yet. Listen, we all know he's probably the one who killed Petito. So we have body cam video of police pulling them over. She's crying. She says on camera to these officers, he hit me, he grabbed my face, she's crying. We also have a bystander who dials 911 and reports that he sees him slap her, okay. So the police, knowing all that, pull them over. They have this discussion on body cam video, and what does he do? Does he arrest laundry? No. He tells them, "Go your separate ways. Maybe spend some time in a hotel separately." Guess what? Fast forward. Who knows? Many days later, she's dead. Now put that in contrast with the Sandra Blands, the George Floyd of the world. Do we give those same courtesies? To the George Floyd's, the Sandra Bland's. No, we don't tell them, oh, go go, go work it off in a motel room. They're arrested, not just arrested, killed on the streets of our country. So to me, that's an incredibly compelling difference between how these
3: two cases are handled and really unfortunate. There's no question about that. There's no question about that. To me, that's clear cut and 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 anyone that would suggest that there's uh not a disparity disparity in the way that policing is doled out um i frankly think uh they're 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 way off to be to be pleasant but crazy. Uh, to be real, the reality of it is you can look at how, for example, Rittenhouse, uh, up, uh, how he got treated. Um, you can look at how, um, uh, you know, the, the, the South Carolina nine, how they were killed and how instead of being taken to jail, Uh, The shooter was taken to Burger King before he was taken to jail. We know with certainty that there is a disparity in the way that policing is administered. And we also understand, if you think about it, how policing got started in this country. So there's a long history. You know, some policing, um, it it rose out of slave catching. So we know and understand that there's a long history relative to how policing has been administered that it's been in large measure, it's been polluted by some of some of the, 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 the worse are angels. So there's no question about that sort of thing. And 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 when we see it, we have to call it out. If you don't, you help to perpetuate it.
4: It, it, it couldn't be more obvious. And you mentioned Rittenhouse, and, and we welcome our, our other guests. But you mentioned Rittenhouse. The judge in the Rittenhouse case, as we've covered, says that the photo depicting Rittenhouse flashing the OK white supremacist sign with Proud Boys in a mm-hmm. bar is not admissible.
3: What? How is that not a missile? But it's fairly I mean, shocking. You know, Dylan Ruth, Dylan Ruth, when he got arrested for killing nine people, think about this now: killing nine people, admitted to it. By the way, right? Was taken to get something to eat. Now, what they would have done in large measure had it been someone else, one could easily suggest shoot, and then ask questions later. That's what they do in many, many instances, far too many that we can t- t- to point out, uh, than, than this time, this the show has time for.
2: I'd love to jump in and ask one last question here for both of our guests regarding the importance of social media against the backdrop of what we've seen over the past couple of years, including with George Floyd. Obviously, it's become an increasingly important um, medium over the past few years with missing persons cases and law enforcement in general in your opinion does social media help or hurt when it comes to trying to address things like the missing white woman syndrome
3: so so from my standpoint the, the social media acts as the engine right media picks up on that which is interesting to the masses social media flags that which is interesting to the masses and therefore ends up in the media so it's a huge, huge tool to use. It's also a huge, a huge, huge indicator as to what's going to get covered. If you can master sort of managing social media, you can also find yourself being able to control the media and the narrative that falls out of it.
4: And we welcome Professor Ayad Gruber. Uh, Professor, welcome to the show. We really appreciate you being on. You've got a You've also been uh, quoted on the missing white women syndrome. We would love your opinion on, you know, why this phenomenon is happening. I know you've got some historical uh, perspective on that as well.
5: Yeah, thank you so much. So I think that the white woman missing white women syndrome has to be understood at the intersection of race and of people's conceptions of what crime is about. So when you think of violence against women, what people want to think is that it's not structural, right? It's 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 this monstrous guy who you know was blending into society, and um, you know you know the the woman and the man seem to have this perfect van life, and that's what makes it such an interesting phenomenon for the public. And when you look at, for example, the phenomenon of missing and murdered indigenous women and women of color, you see a lot of structural factors, right? You see like poverty, you see that they're in relationships where they don't have the means to escape abusive murderous relationships. You see a lack of um, community resources for the women. And in fact, in the missing and murdered indigenous women movement, Uh, One of the things that the movement activists concentrate on is bringing resources into the communities and to these women. And and all of that is completely ignored. When you look at a sensationalist case like 48 Hours or, or Gabby Petito, it's just, wow, can you believe it? There's this horrible guy and they seem to have a perfect life and that's what's causing violence that's what's causing sort of these social problems so i think it's um it's very convenient for people to be fascinated with these cases they seem like one off and you know i think society can feel like you know we don't have any larger connection to the phenomenon of violence against women especially against marginalized women
4: well, listen, this is an incredibly interesting story and, and very unfortunate. I am glad we're talking about it because I think, as Cannon mentioned, the more light that is shown on this issue, uh, hopefully we'll resolve it going forward. But, you know, not as members of the media, so to speak, I think it is beholden on us to, again, shine that light on and address this because it's uh, it's very disturbing, frankly, all the attention that's paid on this case versus the many out there. Uh, Ken Lambert, frequent uh, contributor to this show. We really appreciate your time. Civil rights attorney, personal injury attorney, and Professor Aya Gruber, thank you so much. Sorry that we have to run, but we're going to have you both back on to address this topic as it develops. Thank you so much for joining us. On Legal Faceoff.
6: You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will, and Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal. Legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will, and Emery, visit MWE.com. Welcome back to another
1: episode of Legal Face Off podcast here on WGN Radio. My name is Joe Christopoulos filling in for the majestically handsome Joe Brand with our usual co-host Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. We are here talking today to Professor of Law at George Mason University and a senior fellow at the Cato, Todd Zawicki. Todd, you're here to talk today with us about COVID vaccine mandates. That's right. Great to be with you.
2: Professor, last August, um, public interest lawyers from the new Civil Liberties Alliance filed suit on your behalf against your employer, George Mason Law School, where you're a professor challenging the university's mandatory COVID-19 vaccine requirement. In your lawsuit, you claim that the vaccine mandate violates your constitutional right to bodily integrity for no compelling reason. Can you please explain to our listeners a little bit more about your lawsuit?
7: My lawsuit was specifically focused on a particular issue, which is natural immunity. Um, And I have natural immunity. Um, Natural immunity consists of more than just antibodies. But at the time, my, my immunologist, a trained immunologist, had me do an antibodies test and found out that my antibodies level was 894 times uh, baseline antibodies levels, which was comparable to somebody who had been vaccinated. Um, and in his opinion, and now in the clear um uh, scientific evidence that has come out now is not necessary uh, to protect uh, to protect the public to vaccinate somebody who's had natural immunity. But beyond that, it was also my immunologist's opinion, which is now supported by at least six uh, studies that shows that those who have had COVID and recovered And then get vaccinated are not just at the same risk of adverse effects that everybody has, but at a much higher elevated risk of adverse effects. So what we were talking about was they were wanting to make me undergo a medical treatment that had no benefit to me or the community and had a very high risk of serious adverse effects to me. And we argued that that was not constitutional. It did not meet the standard necessary in order to infringe my bodily autonomy. Um, Eventually, the case was um, uh, basically settled, more or less. I was granted a a medical exemption by the university. um, And then they changed some of the rules that had disadvantaged me relative to those who were vaccinated. And so we let the case lapse. And I'm grateful that I had that. Uh, But as you know, many cases now around the country have followed the lawsuit that I um, uh, filed and have raised a lot of the same issues.
4: Right. So picking up on that, Professor, obviously, there are uh, you're not the only one fighting this. And in the wake of obviously the FDA approving the vaccine and many businesses, government agencies, airlines, et cetera, mandating that their employees take the vaccine, we're going to see uh, uh, you know some more lawsuits like yours. How do you reconcile your action with the case law that's out there, including the Supreme Court case? I got I got to read this. It's the Jacobson versus Massachusetts case. And some cases afterwards, which held that the state, Massachusetts, could find people who would not take the smallpox vaccine. That seems to empower uh, government and private businesses to mandate vaccines. How do you think your position (coughs) falls in line with that case?
7: Yeah, well, it's clear that what, what, what Jacobson actually stands for and what states have subsequently done is that at this point, it appears a reasonable case can be made to have immunity. Uh, requirements for contagious diseases. And if you look at every state, for example, I live in Virginia. Virginia does not have a vaccine requirement uh, for people to go to school. Virginia has an immunity requirement to go to school, which to say, for example, if you have evidence that you have had measles or mumps or rubella and recovered, it could show that, say, with an antibodies test or some other reasonable way, then you don't have to get vaccinated. Um, and Uh, And that should be the same rule here, uh, obviously. Uh, The other thing is, is that that Jacobson was decided in 1905. Uh, It had 1905 medicine, and had 1905 ethics. Jacobson ended up meeting its nadir in a case called Buck versus Bell, um, which is a Virginia case, which relying solely on the Jacobson precedent, the Supreme Court upheld a Virginia state law that uh, um, permitted forced sterilization of uh, what they called a feeble-minded person which wasn't feeble-minded at all and the court said that um, a if the state can force you to tie uh, to undergo a mandatory vaccination they can also force you to tie your fallopian tubes for the public uh for the public interest We don't live in that kind of world anymore. We don't live in a world where that kind of barbaric, archaic medicine and and, um, ethics is acceptable for people. And so what we saw beginning in the 1960s was the Supreme Court recognized we have a fundamental right to bodily integrity. um, That you've got to have a compelling reason before you can force somebody to undergo uh, a medical treatment such as this. The courts have not reconciled this archaic, barbaric line of cases with this more modern, civilized line of cases of recognized bodily integrity. And I think once they do, it's pretty clear how they will come down, which is that with respect to natural immunity, at least, um, there's no compelling interest that to have somebody who has natural immunity to undergo this uh, this vaccine, vaccination procedure, which is Pretty clearly at this point, uh, natural immunity is at least as good as the best vaccines. And quite it's pretty obvious now at this point, especially after the Israel study, that natural immunity provides longer, more durable, and more robust uh, protection than uh, than vaccines. There's certainly no question that it provides at least as good of protection, including more mediocre vaccines such as uh, Johnson & Johnson. It's far superior to that.
2: So, Professor, until the court makes or, or considers a case on this topic and actually renders a, a decision, how do you think, given everything you've mentioned, which you present some very compelling arguments, with the other side being trying to strike that delicate balance in terms of addressing health emergencies, knowing that COVID deaths continue to rise both in the U.S. as well as beyond, plus the fact that I think the science behind this is pretty quickly evolving, more (laughs) so than in other areas that we've seen. How do you think, um, you know, employers can best sort of strike that delicate balance without putting requirements in, in place and having other systems in place that would essentially stop the presses, meaning that there are certain businesses, for example, that can't do weekly testing. So how do we strike the balance, in your opinion, given where we are right now?
7: Well, the first thing you said, Christina, is is very important, which is it is a delicate balance. We are talking about people's health. We are talking about people's safety. And the government in particular, but employers as well, they have an obligation to treat this as a delicate balance and not these sort of blunderbuss sort of one-size-fits-all rules and regulations that are really hurting people uh, out there and really like in, in in a lot of different ways as, as I said the elevator risk here is quite clear to somebody who has natural immunity there's a lot of other people who have medical reasons not to uh, undergo uh, undergo these uh, these treatments um, with respect to those who have natural immunity, which is about 120 million Americans, and we don't know how many have also been vaccinated, but the estimate about 120 million Americans have contracted and recovered from COVID, it's pretty easy at this point. We have the established ways of establishing people's immunity, which is things like antibody tests. You could test for T cells. Um, these are very simple tests that people could present to their employer, and the employer could recognize those. What we also know is that just having been vaccinated doesn't mean you're immune anymore. Um, the latest, latest studies are, especially for like Pfizer, immunity doesn't really last from infection, doesn't last, symptomatic infection, doesn't last really much more than four or five months, um, which is why we're talking about booster shots. So somebody was vaccinated in March, for example, this is why we have hundreds of thousands of breakthrough infections going on uh, in, the, in this country. Being vaccinated doesn't mean you're immune, Um, and you can be immune without being vaccinated. So I would say the easiest thing to do, we first recognize natural immunity, um, and there's a lot of reasonable ways you can do that. Um, Second, if they want to recognize vaccines, even though vaccines really don't provide, at this point, much protection uh, uh, beyond a few months in terms of natural immunity and, and, and the like, those are easy things that could be done. It might be more difficult with somebody who has not either had COVID or hasn't had um uh um or or hasn't been vaccinated. Um, but I think that you said it right, which is uh, and, and I don't see any reason why employers couldn't try to set up a system wherever reasonable to allow weekly testing alike. Although in many cases, um, they should probably, if they're serious about it, they should be testing vaccinated people as well, if they were vaccinated more than a few months ago, if that's their serious uh concern.
1: You can follow Todd Zawicki on Twitter at Todd Zawicki. Todd, thank you so much for joining Legal Face Off. Thank you very much for coming on.
4: Great to talk with you guys. Thanks. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation
1: Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Coming back to the Legal Face-Off podcast, we are here with Representative of the 26th District. He's here today to talk about the Bears potentially moving to Arlington Heights and all the different political games that are going on. Between that is Cam Buckner. Cam, welcome back to Legal Face-Off.
8: Thanks, Joey. Thanks for having me. The
1: Arlington
4: Heights Bears representative just doesn't roll off the tongue, right? Uh, Talk to us about your legislation that you drafted dealing with this potential. You obviously are fighting uh, against this. Tell us why.
8: Yeah, myself and Representative Mike Zaleski filed H.R. 480, um, which would ensure that uh, if the Bears did make a move from uh, my district here uh, uh, on the south side of Chicago um, to Arlington Heights, that there would be no state money that would go to the development of a new stadium. Uh, and really, you know, uh, you know, Rich, I want to see the Bears stay in, in Chicago for a number of reasons, uh, but I do understand private entities make private decisions, uh, but the public should not be on the hook for those decisions. Those, those decisions.
2: So, Representative, taxpayers are still on the hook for about $400 million from the soldier field renovations that happened uh, oh, now quite a long time ago. What effect does that kind of debt have on taxpayers and on the economy?
8: It's, it's a huge effect, Christina. We, we've got a uh, look at the, the broader picture here. Um, and we should not in any uh, good faith be talking about writing another check uh, to the Bears and and, and that organization uh, when we have not been paid back for the last check that we wrote. It's like um, lending somebody money for rent and then looking on Instagram and seeing them on a vacation that you can't afford, right? <laughs> um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And we've got to find a way to talk about it. I know the the stadium scheme that, that folks have done for the last, you know, uh, three or four decades, uh, has been entrenched in, in, our, in our sports and our sports entertainment uh, industry. But we, we can't do that in Illinois moving forward.
4: So, Representative, just so we're clear, and for our listeners to have some context, um, the Bears are threatening to move. The team purchased land that was formerly Arlington Racecourse, which is about, what, 30 miles outside the city. And they are threatening, at least there's some discussion that they might move if they don't get more favorable terms. And those terms aren't probably possible in the current footprint because they lease the space, they lease Soldier Field from the Chicago Park District, which is a public, obviously a taxpayer-funded uh, resource. So your legislation isn't hoping, isn't really, doesn't have the power to prevent them from moving, as you noted. They're a private company. You're just prevent. You're trying to prevent taxpayers from funding this move. All that being said, I know you're a former football player, former member of the University of Illinois. Uh, where the Bears happened to actually uh, pr- uh, play that one year they were being renovated. Don't the Bears have the right? And don't we as fans, by the way, I'm a season ticket holder, we have the smallest capacity stadium in the NFL. The Bears are not making as much money as the competitors, and that probably translates arguably to the field. Yeah. Isn't there a compelling reason for them to go to Arlington where they could build their own Jerry World, their own SoFi Stadium where they have plenty of space?
8: Listen, when we're talking about team valuations, when we talk about uh, staying and being competitive, uh, we can look at the fact that the Bears pay $6 million a year to the Park District uh, to lease the building, uh, which sounds like a paltry amount to a lot of us. Uh, but, you know, the way the, the system is set up, you can look at a team like the New Orleans Saints, who gets paid $6 million a year from the state of Louisiana to play in the Superdome. Um, I, I get Uh, that the playing field is uneven for them. I get that they got to find ways to be competitive. Not only am I a former football player, but I worked in a uh, major league baseball front office. I I understand how these things work. Uh, And so if this is the right move for them, uh, from a business standpoint, I I understand it. I would just hope that we can find ways to um, meet in the middle, uh, to find some peace in the Valley. Because I really do think that the Chicago Bears should be playing football in Chicago.
2: So, Cam, switching gears, you recently wrote an op-ed piece on the need for Black families to get vaccinated. Why is that important?
8: It's huge. We, we've seen this this virus uh, ravish uh, this entire country, this entire world, but uh, specifically in uh, lower income, lower resource Black and Brown communities. Uh, and the the the, the virus, as We try to get a hold of it. Uh, we know that we have uh, one real weapon in this in this fight. Um, other than, than masks and tests, that's and the, that's the vaccinations. Um, and because of the history of medical racism in this country, a lot of folks point to the uh, Tuskegee experiment and the, um, uh, the things that, that happened based on that and the sterilization of Black women over time, a lot of folks in communities like many of the ones that I represent are nervous about the shock. Um, but I think the right thing to do is not to shun folks, not to, um, to, to meet them with disdain, but to meet them with facts and, and get them to realize uh, that this is for the betterment of all of us and we can't isolate ourselves and we got to do this if we're going to get past this pandemic.
4: Representative, quickly, we only have about 60 seconds left, but I wanted your take on the Chicago crime epidemic, right? You've been very vocal on it. We're discussing in a few minutes this fight, this very public fight now between State's Attorney uh, Kim Fox here in Chicago and Mary Lori Lightfoot over this, you know, Austin uh, gang situation where these perpetrators were, you know, stopped but not charged. Anything that can be done, uh, in your opinion, to stem the tide of, of gun
8: violence, especially in Chicago? Rich, everything has to be done. This is our, our number one problem, uh, whether you're in the business community, the nonprofit community, academia. Um, this is the this is the thing that is hanging over our head, and it's the thing that threatens the greatness of the city. We've got to do whatever we can to address it. Uh, I know that all of our leaders on, each, on every level have um, the, the right passion and the, and the right priorities when it comes to this, but we cannot let this play out in public behind um podiums and by press release or, or, or even, uh, as, as you know, i was in the economic club room the other day and i heard king griffin talk about this yeah a um, from, from marissy Mar- 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 mm. hotel room let's get to the table together and figure out how to get this stuff done um no stone can be unturned we we cannot continue to let the scourge of violence um just take over our city we can't
1: representative cam buckner thank you so much for joining legal face-off podcast right here on wgn radio
8: thank you all have a great day
0: Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey & Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, The Greatest Team in Football History, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey & Lenkoff, please visit bdlfirm.com. That's bdlfirm.com.
1: Okay, everyone, it is time for the Legal Grab Bag right here on Legal Face-Off Podcast right here in WGN Radio. I'm Joey Christopoulos filling in for hockey's heartthrob, Joe Brand, with our, hearts as you, with our hosts as usual, Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. And our
4: hearts, I guess, right?
1: And our hearts, all, full hearts, clear eyes. And let's also introduce our wonderful guest panel today. They are both returning guests. Uh, she's the founding partner of the Law Office of Tiffany M. Hughes. She was rated one of the top 100 lawyers in the Top 100 Lawyers Magazine in 2018 and 2019. Tiffany Hughes, hello, Tiffany. Hello, everyone. Woo-hoo. Hey, it would be You're strange
4: bad. if you if you were rated like 101 in the top 100 lawyers magazine. That would be yeah.
9: rich. It's not as cool. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> and our next guest coming up, she's the host of Simple Politics on Instagram, is an on air legal analyst and contributor for CNN, CBS News, PBS, BBC World News. Just to name a few returning guest professor of law at the University of Baltimore, Kimberly Whaley. Hello, Kimberly. Hi there. And I believe, Rich, if I'm getting this correct, our first topic today is going to be Gabby Petino's homicide case should be a jurisdictional jurisdictional mess based on where she was murdered.
4: I mean, yeah, we just want to pick up on we just talked about Petito and and we've got I mean, that's one of the issues. But maybe just throw it around the room, Tina, and get your thoughts and everyone else's on the latest on this case that's apparently gripping the nation. Although, of course, as we talked about in in our earlier segment, maybe shouldn't be getting the uh, amount of attention it is.
2: Well, I'd love to hear from our guests on this. So I'll just sort of set the stage on this. As everybody knows, and as we discussed in an earlier segment with a couple of our of our interview guests, um, this case has been making headlines for many weeks. It's caused some very provocative conversations about things like the missing white woman syndrome. We've got Gabby Petito, who was on a van life trip with her fiance, Brian Laundrie. They went from Florida to Wyoming. Um, had a very public trip, um, and she disappeared. And there was a lot of footage, audio and video clips, 911 calls, and a police body camera footage from a stop that they made, where it became very clear that these two had a really disturbing relationship. She disappears, her remains are found on September 22nd by the Grand Tetons, which is where they were last seen. Um, Brian Laundrie shows up back in Florida. As Rich said earlier, he's been on the lam since. Um, The remains were found, but authorities are not talking about what the exact cause of death was. And so from a legal perspective, there are obviously a lot of provocative issues. The first, as Rich mentioned, is the jurisdictional mess here, depending on where The authorities determined she was actually killed. If it was on federal land, it's an FBI-driven process. If it was in a state outside of federal land, then it's the states to prosecute. Um, But it just it raises a lot of very disturbing um, stories, a lot of disturbing um, consequences to this, but. The missing white woman syndrome is something that we, as a country, I think, need to deal with and wrestle with. And Rich, I'm happy for you to jump in here, but um, you know this case has been making headlines for weeks now.
4: Yeah, I mean, I. I, I... Oh, uh, I think I was pretty vocal during our earlier segment, but let's jump in with our guest, Kim, uh, what are your thoughts on any aspect of this case, but in particular, this idea that the media is obsessed and, you know, you could argue that the media is only feeding what the market demands. So by extension that the public is obsessed with this case, this one individual who happens to be a white female, you know, woman versus the hundreds, thousands, whatever of other people, many of whom are of color, who are not being covered this way.
10: Well, absolutely. And it's interesting talking about federal land, of course, a lot of these missing women of color are people of native populations that does, don't get any real coverage in this country, even around issues of race. Uh, as far as whether this ends up in state or a federal, in a federal prosecution, state prosecutions, interesting, I've been covering this recently with my first year law students, because it does matter, for example, uh, if you're in a federal versus a state court when it comes to the publicity, because in some state courts, states, judges are actually elected and have to think about reelection and keeping their jobs and how they manage these high profile cases. Whereas in theory, uh, at least, I mean, maybe we can dispute that given the recent rulings out of Texas and the United States Supreme Court. In theory, federal judges are there for life uh, on purpose on the theory that they're not going to be biased. They're not going to be sort of distorted by by the media, um, so that element I think also plays into this. But, but of course, um, you know we have a hierarchy in this country: white males at the top, perhaps white females, as we're talking about somewhere there, uh, and and people of color uh, below that. And it's it's a problem across the board in the criminal justice system, and when it comes to questions of poverty and um, other other entitlements that some of us are born with and some of us are not.
4: Speaking of entitlement, Tiffany, pick up on the idea that. Uh... It seems shocking to many of us, me included, that uh, Brian Laundrie, a white male who is seen on videotape acting very strangely, who, you know, his victim uh, reports to the police that she was struck by Laundrie, right? There's a 911 uh, call that also confirms that he slapped her, yet the police treat him with kid gloves, let him go, sleep in a motel room. And that leads, or ultimately, Petito is dead. We all, you know, pretty much know who did it, yet that same accommodation isn't given to thousands of people of color that we see on videotape every you know, year being apprehended, arrested, killed for much lesser offenses. What, what's going on here?
9: I don't know. I mean, I think that it's, it's unfortunate the fact that we have this evidence and nothing's being done, right? If this was, this was somebody of color, this would be a different story. You know, they would not have any publicity whatsoever, but now we've got a white woman And all of a sudden we're here. So I think, you know, in general, I think it's like Kim said. I mean, we've got an issue here where in our country that, you know, white and African-American and other races are just on different levels.
1: Let's (laughs) fly into our next topic here. We are not frozen. Uh, Prosecutors reject charges against five suspects in deadly gang related gunfight in Austin.
4: Yeah, so listen, obviously, we just talked to the representative about this. Like, crime in Chicago is out of control. And, and Professor, you know, you're in Baltimore. You're no uh, stranger to, you know, uh, violence in, in major cities, but things are getting, you know, out of control. And what intrigued me about this story here in Chicago is now this has grown into a very public dispute between our state's attorney, Kim Fox, and our mayor, Lori Lightfoot, when the last couple of days are basically and and actually calling a press conference. With the express purpose of blaming each other, Kim Fox yesterday said, basically, how dare the mayor question our tactics as a former prosecutor? What happened here is in Austin, which is one of the most you know, uh, violent neighborhoods in the country, uh, a few days ago was shot. out. There was a house shot up in a, in a gang uh, exchange, and they actually stopped the perpetrators. And then ultimately, the state's attorney released them, saying there wasn't enough to charge them. And Lori Lightfoot, who I don't agree with mo- you know many times, basically said, what do you mean there's not enough? You've got like 70 rounds of gun casings. And there was an officer right after that arrested the people. And Kim Fox said there's not enough to charge them. And, you know, we're left wondering, well, if this isn't enough, what would be enough? And she said, well, you know, we have to get buy in from the perpetrators and and, and the victims and et cetera. That's all nonsense. I mean, one of the reasons that has been given for the plague and violence is that while the police might be doing their job, and you could argue that, The prosecutors aren't putting these people behind bars and judges aren't, you know, actually putting enough strong enough sentences in place. And I think this is a great example of that. Tina, as someone who lives in the city of Chicago, it's bewildering that you wouldn't charge these people.
2: You're kind saying it's bewildering. Honestly, I mean, it just leaves me scratching my head. Like, if you're not going to charge people for something like this, what are you going to charge them for? And having Fox and Lightfoot not getting along in such a public forum does not help the situation in any shape or, or form. It, it, it's just remarkable to me.
4: Yeah. And, and Professor, what what struck me was they said the reports from the state's attorney's office decision to decline charges said Mutual combatants was cited as the reason for the rejection, as if this is the Wild West. The last time I checked, the state's attorney was representing the citizens of the county and not the individuals only involved in the altercation. I mean, what's going on here?
10: Well, my guess is, and Tiffany, I'm sure can weigh in this, that that they're not seeing a clear victim. uh, And so the consideration is, listen, we have to move on. To other cases where somebody was injured, here they kind of were were on each other. Um, what's interesting, frankly, from my perspective, and I ran a piece this morning in the Bulwark on the Second Amendment, is that you know we've got a crisis of um, increasingly unregulated guns in this country. Uh, the question coming up before the United States Supreme Court, all our argument is November third, is whether the landmark decision. In 2008, penned by Justice Scalia, that found an individual right to bear arms. First time, basically, kind of superseded a case from back in 1939 that limited it to militias. Um, whether that extends outside the home and into our streets—that you can have a concealed weapon in our streets—and what bothers me about this whole conversation is, you know, not to justify what the prosecutors did here, but at least prosecutors are accountable to the people, at the ballot box. Um, judges in many places are accountable to the people at the ballot box. Um, lawmakers who are passing laws. Uh, But these nine people in robes who are there for life are going to take this question out of the 170 million uh, people, registered voters, who can decide more than 53% of Americans want some kind of gun regulation. And they're going to decide um, based on very ambiguous law whether as a matter of the Constitution itself, reasonable restrictions on concealed carrying um, outside of the home are banned, barred, like that states and localities cannot do anything about that issue. That, to me, is the meta problem here. Of course, there are many issues that contribute to the rise in gun violence and violence in general. But the fact that these unelected judges, justices, are not representative of this country, three of which are not on the court in any measure of a fair process, are going to decide this for the rest of us and our children, frankly. But hey, here's the good news. Professor, here's the good news.
4: Here's the good news. In the wake of what happened in the Texas abortion case, maybe it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. Maybe local jurisdictions could then pass laws that deputizes individual citizens with no standing to overcome those Second Amendment cases. Right. Right, That's
10: right. That's the maneuver. Exactly. The new maneuver is, listen, it's not government doing anything. Government's the only entity really that is bound by the Constitution with rare rare, rare exceptions. So let's just outsource this to vigilantes and then we don't have any constitutional guarantees whatsoever. I mean, this is definitely, sadly, the direction that we're going to in this country. Um, A drip, drip, drip away from the power in the hands of the people.
4: Stephanie, jump in on this. I mean, do you feel like uh, the prosecutors are justified here? To the professor's point, maybe the victims weren't cooperating. My point is, I am the victim, right? I wasn't shot. My house wasn't shot. But as a citizen paying taxes in Cook County who wants to avail myself of the safety of not being shot, I am a victim that the prosecutors, the state's attorney, Kim Fox, should be protecting And uh, by going after these people.
9: You know what's crazy? This sounds to me like Mortal Kombat, you know, like the video game. I mean, literally. So, if you're if you're willfully engaging in the conduct, then they're saying that that is essentially this this mutual combat, right? I mean, that's like it's like Mortal Kombat. And if you look at you know their whole basis for this, which you know I understand that that in January the Illinois General Assembly passed that um, the new criminal justice reform bill. I think it was like uh, whatever the number was, like HB something. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to narrow the state's murder statute so the felony murder rule is what they consider to be too broad which uh, i mean a lot of states have a very very similar rule. so now they're trying to narrow it to make it so that instead of it being where individuals can be committed or individuals can commit forcible felonies including robbery burglary criminal sexual assault etc with and be charged with first degree murder um they're trying to narrow it so we've got this issue. It hasn't been signed by the governor yet. It's still in play. I just, to me, it sounds like, okay, well, if I guess if you're a willful participant in it, then you can just go ahead and then have these shootings and everything is fine. It's again, like a mortal combat, which I think is ridiculous.
1: Coming up, our next topic up here on the legal grab bag, Merrick Garland asked FBI to address threats against school boards over COVID-19 restrictions, masks, and racial debates.
10: You know, I'm happy to comment on that. I think it's really uh, astonishing that we have the Department of Justice getting involved in this kind of violence around reasonable mandates, aspect, you know, putting masks on to um and taking vaccines to save uh, to save lives. When we have seven hundred thousand Americans dead, um, uh, and we, at the same time, as was mentioned in Texas, have a judge recently just issued an injunction stopping it. But the Supreme Court basically tolerating government intrusion into women's pregnancies at six weeks. But uh, but people fighting over whether government can intrude to the extent to which you have to wear a mask in public, along with buckling your seatbelt and other things. I mean, we really are so far afield, and and this is why, frankly, and I know I have to sign off. This kind of a conversation is so helpful because people don't understand the basics of how our government works and the basics of how the law works. And guess what, my friends, lots of, quote, rights unquote are regulated are limited our free speech our religion rights second amendment rights those are all regulated so that we can have a safe and ordered society and and you know some of us are are pretty far along in our lives but when it comes to my children uh, that's what i'm concerned about and in my mind that's where these vaccine mass date uh, mandates come along so if we've got to invoke the justice department better than nothing anyway i've got to hop on and uh talk about January 6th report with CNN. So I'm, I'll, I appreciate the invite and I hope to see you again on the show.
2: Yeah. So Tiffany, what are your thoughts?
9: I mean, I think you're crossing a fine line. I mean, we have the federal government we have, we have state action. So states are allowed to run the states that they want you know, in the way that they want to. So how far are we going to go in getting the Department of Justice involved to essentially infringe on your rights in a certain state? Um, I mean, is there going to be a fine line or is this going to be kind of like a, you know, like a slippery slope where essentially we're saying we're going to make exceptions for certain things, but not make exceptions for other things. So where does it start and where does it end, essentially? So I understand the concern. I think that everybody is kind of mixed on the subject with COVID at this point with being vaccinated. I shouldn't have to wear a mask. I don't want to wear a mask. There's a lot of issues in Chicago right now about it. Um But I don't know. I mean, I think being safe is good, but I don't know if I want to have the Department of Justice in the state of Illinois controlling what we're doing.
4: I'll tell you, I served on my kids' school board for uh, about eight years, and I serve on two other school boards. And I'll just say parents are nuts, right? Parents get incredibly crazy over uh, a lot of issues. And this is as polarizing an issue as we've seen and we've all seen videos of, you know, parents not just expressing themselves, but attacking cars and, you know, personally getting in the space of board members. So I tend to fall on the side of protecting people who are mostly volunteers, right, volunteering their time to devote to schools. And I understand your perspective and those who say it's a bit of a stress to call them domestic terrorists and to use federal resources in that way. But on the other hand, you know, we all it's going to take is for a volunteer school board member to get shot or injured by an irate parent for us to maybe change our perspective on it.
9: Yeah, I just think that, you know, if we start here and we allow them to come in on something like this, when are they going to interject in something else? And what are they going to classify it as? And what are they going to say that it is in order to warrant them to then be involved and essentially take over the state's own action? So if they want to work together and we're protecting, I agree with that. But where does that lead us as far as the president going forward, as far as them interjecting in the future? And what does that mean for us? And what does that mean for you know our children and everybody else involved for the future?
2: Well, and I understand what you both are saying and what the professor was saying, too. And just one thing I'd add is I don't think we'd even be here having this conversation if we didn't live in a society where we suddenly, over the past few years in particular, can't have a rational discourse Even when we disagree with each other. I mean, if we were able to, then none of this other stuff would even be in in discussion. We wouldn't be dealing with these situations. But the problem is, is that we've become a society that's very intolerant of people who don't believe what we believe. And these are the natural consequences that flow from that.
1: There's certainly an irony when there's a trying to come to a consensus on community safety and it leads to violence. Uh, I don't I, that seems to be definitely the very scary thing. Moving on to our next topic here on the legal grab bag. Chess Pioneer sues saying she was slighted in Queen's Gambit. Do we have a case here?
2: Well, I you know, I tend to practice at the intersection of a bunch of different areas on the IP front. And one of them is. And, you know, area that comes into my practice quite a bit is defamation and things of that ilk. And so, interestingly, chess pioneer Nona Gaprindashvili, if I got her name right, um, has sued Netflix over a statement that was made in their hit series, The Queen's Gambit. So Nona is the first person who has become a grandmaster, won the grandmaster title in chess way back, like over 40 years ago. And in this series, there's a fictional heroine who is a woman who is a chess player. And you've got an announcer who is sort of in the background giving a play-by-play. And the commentary that he's giving during this really critical chess game is that Nona is the only woman chess champion, but has never faced men. Well, actually, that is not a true statement. And although this is a fictionalized account, it's peppered with true people, actual people and actual events. And so I read somewhere that apparently she actually defeated a a few dozen men during the course of her chess career. She was greatly offended by the fact that in this fictional portrayal and in her estimation, in an effort to build up their fictional character and what her accomplishments are during the show, that they really, you know, layered on all of this positivity about her, but diminished her true um, reputation in the process. And so she sued in L.A. federal court. She sued for five million dollars in damages, saying that this is a falsehood that has impaired and tarnished her reputation in the chess community and beyond um and she's looking looking for money and i gotta tell you i can understand why she's upset by this especially given how um many millions of people have been watching the show so i get it
4: rich yeah i, th- I think netflix has a bit of a problem I mean it's one thing to use Uh, someone's, you know, uh, a character that maybe sounds like someone else. This is a pretty direct correlation, right? So once you get over the idea that it's certainly her, then you turn to damages, right? Then you turn to an analysis, like in most cases, what are her damages? And I think it's very compelling when she said, I don't get offended by many things. She said, not many things can damage me emotionally, but this is surprising to me and humiliating. I mean, I am the biggest proponent of questioning damages, right? As a defense lawyer who represents a lot of these kind of, you know, companies in these kind of cases, I think that a lot of them, as we've talked about on the show, the damages are very questionable. In this case, I think Netflix has a bit of a problem.
3: Tiffany, what, what are your you thoughts?
9: Um, I mean, look, I've seen this before. I've seen the show. Um, I've seen this actual specific um, part of it, which they mentioned. And I actually read the complaint that was filed. I mean, it's just so interesting that not only do they like they demean essentially demean her and her capabilities for what she did and the fact that she did go against many, many, many men. Um, I think the number was somewhere maybe around 25 or 26 previously and was successful and was one of the champions for like 20 plus years. But then on top of it, in the actual show, they mentioned. So she's from Georgia, from the country of Georgia. And they make her from Russia, which was under, Georgia was under the Russian, you know, dominance at that time. So it's like, it's not only hitting on her sex, demeaning her for her ability as a woman at that time, which was incredible for her, um, considering I'm sure there weren't many women at all, if, you know, maybe one or two, I think. But, and then on top of that, they're, they're saying that she's Russian with with this direct correlation that it's absolutely her like rich hit it on the head okay first of all you know are we talking about the same person are they is this directly connected absolutely and now it's like well we've got false light you know you have there is defamation and it's a direct attack of her character and her reputation I, I think it's I think she should go for 10 million
4: that's what I think well Netflix well, also has the quickly- money. Quickly, Tina, this is your area, defend Netflix here. I mean, there's something to be said for dramatic license, right? I mean, this is a drama. This is a, uh, an enter- supposed to be an entertaining uh, piece of art. And therefore, they have the right to take some dramatic license, or do they? I and mean, what, what's the counter to what we're saying?
2: I mean, I would say that the counter would be exactly what you'd say, Rich, that everybody knows that this is a fictionalized account. And on that basis... Um, whether it's we read it in books, we read we we see them on TV and in film, that there is often some level of historic backdrop to a time, an era, and a circumstance for various fictionalized characters, and sometimes that the artists and the authors and the playwrights and whoever behind them do alter um, certain information. That being said, another really important fact is that the book upon which this show is based did actually did address um, her, but the what was said about her was very different than what ultimately came up in the show. The statements that were made were not near, near did not nearly align with what was ultimately said by this announcer in the show itself. So, Joey, I, I, think,
4: I think viewers should be allowed to sue. I I recently watched. You know, Joe, you and I both love sports movies. Uh, you've done a lot of podcasts about sports movies. I recently showed my son, who's a big NFL fan, the movie Invincible. This is the story of Mark Wahlberg, who yes. plays Vince Paley, who allegedly, the story is that he walked in off the street to a tryout with the Philadelphia Eagles in the 70s, and from the street, in this ragtag bunch of people trying out, he made the Eagles. Okay, I watched the movie. I've seen it a couple times. And I watch it, and I do that. I, I wiki it. Guess what? He was a professional football player in a competing league. He didn't walk in off the street. The coach of the Eagles, Dick Vermeil, invited him to a tryout. So, like, if anyone should be offended, it's me as a viewer, right? I mean, that's crazy.
1: Yeah, the only thing I'll there's, say
4: is there's dramatic license, but that changes the whole dynamic of the
1: story. Yeah, I didn't see Queen's Gambit, but this is the slippery slope of based on a true story. When they right. stick that on the poster. We started doing it in what, like the '80s and the '90s, and now it's kind of the horses out of the barn on that a little bit. Where you know, Blair Witch is based on a true story, so I, I, I haven't seen it, so I can't tell like the difference of how they do put her in a false light as a character. But I will say, when you stick that on there, as probably Netflix did with Queens Gambit, you are kind of selling a particular thing to an audience, which I think can be misconstrued and can hurt actual real people when they are trying to tell those stories. I will say that.
4: Joy, so thank God, your favorite I'm movie hard. Cobra is not based on a true story.
1: It's not. I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> Marion <Marianne> go. Cabretti. <laughs> Moving on to our next topic, um, arbitrator holds Trump's unreasonable non-disclosure pact with Amarosa Manigault Newman is "quote unquote" unenforceable.
2: Yeah, so I don't know about you all, but you know, way back in the day when um, The Apprentice was on in the early 2000s, I have to say I was a big Trump fan and a big fan of the show. And Amorosa, I mean, when you have a person who is essentially like Madonna in terms of going by one name, you know how popular she was. And she was the person that you love to hate on The Apprentice, just like everybody loved Bill Rancic, everybody hated Amorosa. So apparently, that was when the beautiful relationship she had with Trump was born. And they went on to collaborate in a number of different ways, culminating in when she became part of his administration in 2016. She was subsequently fired, not all that different from how she was fired from The Apprentice, in 2017. And that's when she went, I would say, nuclear. She started leaking tapes, um, one of which was actually her being fired from her White House position, and then in 2018, she authored a book called *Unhinged*, where she went into pretty great detail about her thoughts on Trump. And there wouldn't be a story if she had good things to say. Um, she commented on a number of things, including her views on his cognitive abilities. The upshot is that Trump's administration was not happy with this turn of events and sued her for a breach of her non-disclosure agreement. So what's interesting is that at the end of the day, and not surprisingly, this non-disclosure agreement was seemed and it was deemed to be so broad um, that essentially she's not able to say anything negative, at least that's what the, how the how it was interpreted. And the ultimate result was that it was found to be unenforceable. And um, so she actually gets attorney's fees through all this process and the decision is not appealable unless um, there's some type of fraud to be found. But um, I find it particularly interesting um, that you know she's back in the news again, getting the press that she's always loved to get, and it just made me laugh when I saw this story.
4: Couple takes. I mean, by the way, who even knew that you could get a decision where the appeal is banned, but for a. Uh, um fraud. I didn't even know that could be. That's great. But I love the lawsuit. I love the fact that it comes that it shows how broadly these agreements that the Trump organization drafts are. I mean it basically says for the rest you can actually say it with a Trump accent, right? For the rest of your life, like you will never say anything remotely critical about anyone like remotely uh, uh close to the Trump organization. So that's great. But my my my, my other take on this is like where were you, Omarosa, when you were part of the problem? All these people, it's inevitable after an administration concludes, right? Everyone comes out and says, oh, I, here, here's how bad the administration was. I mean, we in the news this week is the former press secretary, who was press secretary for like a day, basically, and never had a, an actual press conference. But she wrote a book that's on the New York Times bestseller. Uh, it's called, I think, I Will Take Your Questions Now, where she rats out the president being unhinged and the first lady, and she talks about the coat. Guess what? Where was that book while you were an enabler? While you were propping up the administration, while you were telling lies. You were part of the problem now, after you've left the administration or been kicked out. Now it's your turn to make some money. That that kind of bothers me. So I wish Omarosa brought this lawsuit and, you know, spilled these secrets way earlier than 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 now. Tiffany?
9: Well, I mean, keep in mind she's getting the publicity, but so is Trump. I mean, he was the one who brought this. And, you know, to be honest, I mean, as a lawyer, I don't know. I'm just like, doesn't he have a major, major, like high end, quote unquote, legal team? I mean, wouldn't you think like, hey, Omarosa is going to be working on X, Y and Z. We're going to put in the contract X, Y and Z. She can't talk about. (laughs) Special guest, watch out. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Trump. How are you? Um, You know, like, (laughs) Trump, didn't you have your legal team? Don't you pay your legal team a lot of money? You I heard. Have you. them draft the, the contract right? I'm suing you right now.
2: <laughs> I mean, non disclosure agreements are like, you know, agreements 101. And everybody knows that if you don't draft them quite right, they're not enforceable.
9: Right? I mean, what am I missing here? Like, what did he think was going to happen? So they file suit, they go through binding arbitration, and now all of a sudden, what? Now they're surprised that it was it was dismissed because it was broad and vague. Like really?
1: Yeah. Unreal. It was incredibly vague. <laughs> it, it's fire. You look like you look like Gary Busey auditioning for Michael Myers right now. Um it's basically sort of crazy. Mix up. Um I think we're gonna go on to our go on to our next topic here. Oh my god, I had to kick Trump out of here. This one's <laughs> thank God. <laughs> We've got a salacious topic here. Billionaire John Paulson's wife found out about divorce on page six panel. What happened to love and what happened to a well-constructed memo? Where are we these days?
4: We had to get this case for Tiffany, of course, because, uh, man, I mean, the story here is that this guy is worth, what, 4.7 billion and was allegedly dating this woman who was about half his age. His wife didn't know uh, until she read it. By the way like this story seems like a, a relic of many years ago because who reads the actual paper but she found out when page six hang on, i've got some couple trump hairs uh when page six published the whole story and that's when she first found out about it since then shockingly not shocking they've agreed to resolve their differences behind the hot glare of publicity but uh Tina, uh, not a great way to find out. And Tiffany, we want your thoughts, of course, because this is your wheelhouse. You handle family law and have handled many acrimonious divorces. Probably not a great thing to inform your spouse, especially when she is the alleged victim of your adultery, philandering, whatever you call it. Probably not the best way to inform them. Probably not seen very positively
2: by the courts. Oh. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to jump, jump in just to tee it up. And then Tiffany, we obviously defer to yeah. you on this. But I mean, at the end of the day, let's take a step back. And as a as a show, talk about all the divorces that we have talked about over the past couple of years. High profile divorces involving billionaires and the need to sort of walk that delicate line of making sure that, you know, you handle the press, you handle your now soon to be former partner in a way that you help mitigate things going off the rails, particularly in the press. This is like the exact definition of what not to do. This is the exact definition of let's create a headline that could have potentially been avoided by just maybe not filing and trying to have a conversation in a respectful way. Tiffany, what do you think? Well,
9: first of all, I didn't know what page six was, um, but, I looked it up and so for everybody who doesn't know what page six is it's page six of the New York Post um, so it's the paper like rich said um, so I think the fact that you know if he, if he was looking to have an amicable divorce well that's out the window I mean that's done now I mean the right thing to do and, and you know what and I hope that his attorneys advised him of this in advance and are not trying to take advantage of Legal fees or litigation as a result of this, but I mean, legally there's nothing wrong with what happened. Um, what will happen now is that w- there will be a ridiculous amount of litigation over things because she is not, she's not going to, um, she's not going to resolve things amicable. She's going to go for, she's going to go for blood. So their four billion dollar estate probably will result in being. You know, I don't know, $20, $40 million in attorney's fees just because of this.
4: Well, so to that point, she said that, and by the way, she is Jenny, the wife, is represented by uh, the attorney who represented Melinda Gates in her split, probably what the most expensive split in 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 history but she said that uh they've agreed to withdraw their divorce proceeding or working towards an amicable negotiated resolution that just means this guy's got to pay a lot of money right i mean the fact that it's out of out of court means that he's gonna be paying you know up the nose and again talk to us tiffany really quickly about the effect maybe legally it's not of huge import but the effect on how this looks to a neutral, for example, or the judge, or any of the participants, when he's handled himself this way, it, it can't be an asset for him. Obviously.
9: Well, it's not going to be an asset, definitely. But the courts can't use it against him. I mean, a neutral—if you have a mediator or if you have somebody else that you're using—you can't. They can't be using that per se to weigh in on the division of assets or anything like that. I mean. What she's going to say is, "Look, I'm going to. I'm willing to do X, Y, and Z, but now that comes with a price tag." And then, in the back of the mediator or a neutral third party or the judge, they're going to view her as the reasonable person and him as the unreasonable person. So then, when you get into arguments about certain assets, the judge, although he or she is not allowed to actually take it into account, we're people. We're human, right? Like the judge finds out he knows what he did you know decisions come down and decisions are made based on things that you wouldn't think really influence judges but legally no that they're not they're not allowed to it happens though
1: Let's tackle our final topic here on the Legal Grab Bag and Legal Face Off podcast here on WGN Radio. The Man of Steel leads NYC's New York City record-shattering shoplifting surge with 46 arrests. Do you get a T-shirt after that? I'm not so sure. What do you think, panel? I
4: mean, Finally, Isaac I'll... Rodriguez, he's only 22. That's the that's the key stat here. <laughs> At age 22, he's already racked up... Uh, 46 arrests for retail theft. I mean, if you do the math, that's that, that's like, a lot.
1: 26 days or <laughs>
4: like, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, talk about like we talked earlier in the show about, you know, not arresting people. I mean, after one or two or after one or two uh thieves, uh, a retail thefts, like don't you lock this guy up? It speaks to the greater problem. Again, we talked about in the Chicago, but we've seen it all across the country where normal shoplifting now and it's not like shoplifting where you are You know, hiding these people we've seen in San Francisco, notably in New York, walking into Walgreens, walking into retail stores, and simply walking out with products. And people are not calling police anymore because police are not prosecuting. To our earlier point, Uh, these retail stores don't have the resources, don't have the personnel to stop them. And it's just now it's accepted that you can walk into a store and walk out. Um, And again, to the point of the story, not not being prosecuted. It takes 46 times to finally say, oh, let's decide to arrest this guy. Unbelievable.
2: That, that's the only word for it. I mean, that's the only word for it, Rich. It is unbelievable. But it's, again, a reflection of a confluence of things that many of which we've talked about on this show for the past couple of years. It's exactly what you said. It's police not wanting to engage its store owners worried about being potentially liable for calling the police or trying to take matters into their own hands. That's why you have major retailers telling their employees to not engage and let, let you know, let the merchandise walk out the door rather than trying to stop people.
4: Yeah. And, and it, it all ties into some of our earlier stories. And Tiffany, like police have been um, defanged, you know, we'll use whatever term you want, but they are they are much less inclined. First of all, they're dropping out of the police force in droves. They're must less inclined to get involved in anything that might put them on a, a videotape, less you know, let alone some minor infraction like shoplifting. And uh, again, when you consider how, I mean, you should be outraged by the idea that you know white women are being uh, their stories are being publicized when women of color aren't. I think you should be equally outraged by this story. Um, and you have to trace some of it to the you know movement uh, to defund police, in my opinion, and also in Chicago. Here, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, the governor signed a pretty sweeping criminal justice reform that ended things like cash bail and made felony murder hard to prosecute. So, I think what we're seeing here in New York, but also in Chicago, San Francisco, is the effect of some some of what we've seen over the last couple of years.
9: Yeah, I mean, I I think this is really sad. I mean, the fact that I get it. Like he was, you know, he stole like some deodorant and some like, you know, I think they said he liked dove a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I get it. They might not think it's a big deal, but in, in the bigger scheme of things, this guy has 74 offenses on a rap sheet. And like how many times you have to go into a Walgreens and steal before the police are going to do something. You know, and and the poor manager at the Walgreens, he's like, well, I keep reporting it, and you know, nobody comes, and the guy leaves. But this guy is in there every single day. So when is it going to be enough? I guess for something to be put in place. And you know, I think that they kind of downplay it in the media, where it's like, well, you know, New York is really busy, and there's bigger crimes and bigger fish to fry, and so we're not really worried about this guy stealing Dove and Cetaphil or whatever else he was buying. But like. It, it's an everyday basis for the people at Walgreens and the staff and the pressure that it puts on them. And there's nothing that's happening, um, so it, it's a huge problem. I mean, it, we have a lot of issues, similar issues like that in in Chicago too. And you know, I don't know. It, it's unfortunate that nothing is being done. And the guy, the guy has other offenses too previously, where he had like yeah. a gun and he stabbed somebody. I mean, like this guy could have been put away a long time ago, and like. Nothing's being done.
4: We got to end off talking really quickly about the squid game. anyone? I didn't know about it until yesterday. And suddenly since yesterday, I've seen about 20 different people talking about squid game on Netflix. You guys watching this thing, it's going to be the most watched Netflix show of all time.
1: That's terrifying. I mean, I don't want to spoil anything for those that have not seen it because it's a show that is definitely deserves to not be spoiled. Uh, But terrifying that people like it so much. Uh, I'll be honest with you.
4: Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's pretty popular. Let's end off with a big shout-out to our esteemed co-host, Tina Martini, recent award winner, Trademark Lawyer of the Year. Oh, that's awesome. According to Euro Money Women in Business Law. Uh, congratulations, Tina. Tina. That's uh, quite an honor. Woo. So Good uh, for you.
2: Thank you very much. It's, we uh, always it's consider
4: for- you the Trademark Lawyer of the Year here on our show, but it's good to see that others are agreeing.
2: Well, thank you. It's really an honor. I'm just so, um, I, I feel so fortunate and grateful. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about the clients and, you know, just having them continue to work with us and to continue to engage us. And it's really been a privilege to work with all the clients and the colleagues that have helped me over the years from a mentoring perspective to get here. So thank you all. I want to give a big shout
9: out to Tina because my firm is all women. And I'm all about powerful, you know, like wonderful women um, that are educated and strong. And so way to go. Awesome. Thank you.
1: What an excellent note to end this week's episode of The Legal Grab Bag right here on the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio. Thanks to everyone's guests. All the guests today, Todd Zawicki, Aya Gruber, Cannon Lambert, Representative Cam Buckner, Tiffany Hughes, and Kimberly Whaley. On behalf of our host, Rich Lankoff, and the award winning tina martini um and our producers emily flores and yvonne barbosa thank you so much please make sure you like subscribe share the show throw it on tiktok who cares uh, thanks for watching this episode i'm joey christopoulos filling in for the hawks hunk himself joe brand thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time it's christina martini and rich Linkoff. you know what time it is welcome to legal face off Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio. We blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. in sports Hollywood
4: and don't forget. The-